Hello, space fans, and welcome to a new edition of Last Week in Space, the Supercluster podcast that brings you all the weekly updates from the world of space exploration. I'm here with Chris Gebhardt, the Assisting Managing Editor of NASASpaceFlight.com and contributor to Supercluster. Chris, it's been a while. You had the hurricane to deal with. We haven't had an episode. We tried to tape an episode. There's a lot of chaos for the last few weeks and during the hurricane. But you're good. Your house is safe. Everything is good with you, right? That is correct. Yes. Amazing. Very um, grateful. We've had a, a lot of things happen after the hurricane or Starhopper. And we talked a little bit about Starhopper. Daniel Oberhaus filled in for you while you were dealing with the hurricane. We talked about tardigrades and we talked about the Indian moon mission. And I... I, I actually we'll get got to, that. to listen to the tardigrade one as yeah. I was did driving back to Florida. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you did. But we're happy to have you back with us and to parse out some of these stories for the week. I think it wasn't a week of big, huge stories, but some really critical ones. Chris, what was the biggest story this week? So the biggest story this week really came out of a company called Iridium Communications, which we have been following for the last two years as they launched their Iridium Next 66 satellite constellation into low Earth orbit with SpaceX and the Falcon 9 from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. And that Constellation's launch was completed back in January, and they've been completely over onto the newer generation of satellites now for several months. And Iridium had a couple of really big and important announcements earlier this week. The first came on Monday when they announced a $738.5 million fixed price contract with the U.S. military for seven years. And that seven-year mark is really unprecedented in terms of military communication contracts, because what the military has secured with this contract is unlimited access to voice, text, and tracking services through the Iridium constellation. And that's a huge boon for Iridium. They've had military contracts before, but I was talking with Matt Desch, the CEO of Iridium on Tuesday about this. And one of the things he said is that without the next constellation, he really didn't think that the government would have gone for as long of a contract as they did with them. And that the government saw the benefit of having a global satellite network that could pinpoint your location and provide voice and data services at any point on the planet, which is what the Iridium Constellation does. And they really spent a lot of time investing in that over the last 19 years and now going with Iridium yet again, following on the heels of a five-year contract that ended a bit earlier this year, really demonstrates the military's faith in Iridium and the new systems that they built into the next constellation. So that was a huge one for Iridium. And the very next day, in fact, it was about 24 hours later, they came out with another major announcement that they have signed what's known as a Memorandum of Understanding with OneWeb. And OneWeb, what does that mean? What does that mean to like the everyday person? A memorandum? Yeah. So basically, it's it's an unfunded formal agreement that the two companies will work together to see if there are ways to synergize the two products that they offer together for customers. Okay. So it's kind of like a good way to think about it is Iridium's primary goal and, and primary element with their next constellation is voice, text, and tracking. And OneWeb is broadband, high throughput, low latency internet. 
right. services, right? So it's kind of like when you call up your local telecommunications provider, right? Be it Comcast or Spectrum or, or whoever you have. And you say, I want internet. And they go, well, good news. For $120, you can get internet, phone, and cable, right? Because all those services are bundled together. So this is sort of like what they're looking at. Is it possible to do that kind of bundling? But Matt Desch was also very forward and upfront with the fact that they don't really know what this will look like. It's really right now just an agreement that they're going to work together to see what possibilities are out there. But that the onus is also really on OneWeb here, not on Iridium. This was something that OneWeb approached Iridium about and was really aggressive in forming this partnership with them. So the ball's really in OneWeb's court. And of course, OneWeb, just like SpaceX's Starlink constellation, they're in the throes of building all of these internet-based space satellites for launch over the next couple of years. So And are aggressively approaching that launch schedule. <laughs> they, well, um, they really are. I believe the next yeah. round of OneWeb satellites is set to launch a bit later this year in mm-hmm. December. It was announced about a month or two ago now that they are the first customer on the Ariane 6 rocket, which is the successor to the Ariane 5 workhorse for the European Space Agency and Ariane Space. So they're mm-hmm. really in the throes of doing all of this, but they're also looking ahead to think, what might our customers who use our broadband services also want and also need? And that partnership with Iridium was really one that they push for because they think there's some good synergy opportunities there. Now, if you're looking for a great way to connect space exploration and rocketry to everyday life, you can look at satellites that you know, are eventually going to be in down internet that you can use and subscribe to. And obviously all the ways they already help out with GPS and in emergencies and disasters. A lot of people always ask, especially students, how does space impact my daily life? Communication satellites, surveillance satellites, those are very direct ways (laughs) that space can have an impact on your life. They, they really are. And if we step back even further from that to just to the Iridium constellation, right, like what we use it for now, if you're on an airplane and you log into that aircraft's Wi-Fi system, well, that's part of what the Iridium constellation does, right? If you're on, I can't speak to other airlines, but I know on Delta Airlines, right, you can access portions of that to have texting while you're on the flight without actually having to pay for internet. Again, that's the same type of service. That's the exact service that these Iridium satellites offer to the everyday person, right? So it's not like you have to be super rich and be on and and have your own boat and have an Iridium terminal there. It's not that you have to be a member of the military or wait for a natural disaster to strike Mm. before you use their services. You, You actually use them every single day. And odds are your city also uses it too. One of the fascinating things in the conversations with Matt, he's a great person to talk to about what their services offer, is we were talking about sewer systems in major cities and how cities use Iridium devices to either track different things with their sewer systems or track their workers as they go down to perform maintenance or look at different things. So like even the stuff you don't see that enables your everyday life to continue very smoothly, you have the Iridium constellation to thank for that. Interesting. And, you know, like I said, people should pay attention to the development of satellites because 
the Wall Street banks are predicting that the growth of the satellite market is going to be in the billions, the 30 to 40 billions for small sats alone. People are predicting a windfall for SpaceX in just a handful of years. So they can finance their Mars mission just by selling broadband internet from their Starlink constellation. You know, it's, it's incredible. That's exactly right. And, and, you know, one thing that is, is worth mentioning here, too, is that these internet constellations like OneWeb and Starlink and Telesat from, from the Canadian company are not competition to the Iridium network, right? They, no. they are very complementary to not each other. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons this partnership came about is because OneWeb is not a competition, nor, nor is Starlink. And Matt Desch yesterday was very upfront with saying that if other space-based broadband providers like Starlink or Telesat want to also form partnerships with Iridium, that's something they are happy to look at as well, because the partnership or the memorandum of understanding with OneWeb is not exclusive right now. Oh, interesting. So I've been following the Indian lunar lander story. It's been one of the sadder stories for the last few weeks. I think when it originally happened, I was with Daniel Oberhaus. We were at Supercluster headquarters. We recorded that week's last week in space right after. We weren't sure entirely what had happened. They had lost contact. It was very similar to the Bereshit situation, at least in the public eye. We didn't know what was happening behind the scenes. We did notice distraught faces on the live feed. The live feed was incredible to watch, though, just the way the Indians covered it nationally was incredible. But Chris, now that you're back, I want to rehash that moment because I, you know, we appreciate your take on it. You follow every mission, so you know the the beat by beat of a failure and how people react and, and what happens. So I want to bring this back. And we have some updates from the week as well. I know that NASA tried to fly the orbiter over to take a photo of it and that didn't really happen. And the Indians haven't really been able to make contact and there was this there was a deadline. Uh, before losing that sunlight that would keep it alive. So Chris, let's start at the failure. What happened and, and, and through your eyes and walk us through to where we are today. Yeah, so <laughs> amazingly, kind of, 12 days out from that attempted landing, we still don't know a lot. Right, right. What the Indian Space Research Organization hasn't said a lot, and they're not normally a super quiet organization, which to me indicates that they're still really trying to piece through the data to figure out exactly what happened. So on landing day, the Vikram lander was performing its deorbit maneuvers from low lunar orbit. And the hard braking phase went perfectly. Mm -hmm. And it transitioned to what was known as the fine braking phase, which is instead of like slamming on the brakes, now you're tapping the brakes and maneuvering the wheel, right? So that you stop at a precise point, like in your parking space. It's a good way to think of that. And during this fine braking phase, the telemetry graph in the control center began to show that Vikram was deviating from the dead center of the landing corridor, but that it never went outside of the landing corridor. So a good way to think of this is like the interstate highway system in the US or the motorways in Europe, where you've mm -hmm. got a three lane road and you're in the middle lane, but you can go into the right hand lane, you can go into the left hand lane, that's fine. You can deviate from the center as long as you don't go completely off the road. So that's a good way to think of these landing corridors that, that we use for interplanetary missions. 
And it began to deviate from that center line, but it was still within the corridor itself. Uh, and then about a kilometer above the ground, or about two kilometers above the, the surface of the moon, they lost contact with it completely. It just stopped transmitting. Right. Now, the Indian Deep Space Network, located in India, as well as the more global Deep Space Network that is in California, Australia, and Spain, both of these networks had locks on the lander after it stopped communicating. And what the Doppler radar lock from the Deep Space Network in Madrid, Spain, showed was a telltale tumbling signature mm -hmm. of the lander. Now, that has not been confirmed by ISRO that I have seen, ISRO being the Indian Space Research Organization. But everyone who knows radar signatures knew exactly what that was. Now, the interesting part of that signature was that it looked like toward the tail end of it, right as it was approaching the lunar surface, that it stabilized and that that spin dampened out, not necessarily that it stopped completely, but that it started to self-correct itself. And of course, there's no atmosphere on the moon. So the only way it would have been able to do that is if its thrusters and its engines were still functioning at that point. Now, unfortunately, any attempt at a soft landing was off the table as soon as it started to tumble, right? So it hit the lunar surface fairly hard. And ISRO has said that the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter, where, which, it's worth noting, is where 95% of this mission's science experiments reside. So even That's though right. the lander was lost, the mission is still a success, right? And that orbiter is in lunar orbit, collecting data. It will do so for about one Earth year, if not longer. So the mission is not a, in any way, shape, or form a complete loss. In fact, only about 5% of it was lost with the lander. And let's remember, the first Chandrayaan orbiter discovered water. Yes, yeah. India, <laughs> so, on their first attempt we, going to the moon, yeah. confirmed water. Like, we have every reason. I'm very sad about the loss of the lander and the rover. You know, And like you said, very small part of the mission, those vehicles were only supposed to survive, how long, Chris? Two weeks? 14 days. Yeah, so there you go. So it is a, a loss in a very short-term sort of way. But like Chris says, 95% of that science is still going to be done. I feel like people are past the grieving of that and are looking forward to what this thing is going to discover and add to. And right now, there's clearly a push to return to the moon on everyone's part. And the ability to identify some form of resource or some material that we can use for building for fuel, for anything, something that gives us a really great reason to start sending people to the moon long term, not just public relations missions and what is there that we can use, you know, and I really feel like the Chandrayaan 1 mission, Chandrayaan 2 mission and missions that we have coming up are really going to help answer those questions. Most definitely. And, and, you know, exactly what the lander and rover would have been able to tell us about that, sadly, we won't know. But it's, it's worth noting and going back to this idea that they were, the lander and the rover were only designed to function for 14 days. Right. And that 14-day period is ending because it actually ends on Thursday, September 19th. And that's because the location that it landed at and, and we know it made it to the lunar surface because ISRO said that the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter captured an image of it, a thermal image of it, although they haven't released that image yet. But it's soon to be lunar night 
at its landing location. And a lunar day and night each last for 14 days. So the lander was never designed to survive the lunar night. So any if, if they cannot contact it by, by Thursday, the 19th, then all attempts to contact it are done at that point. That is unfortunate. Yes. But, you know, it's not the last time that India is going to go to the moon. You no. know, it, it was a heartbreaking failure. They got so close. And landing on other bodies is hard. You know, NASA and, and Russia didn't succeed the first times they tried it. You know, but India can still boast one thing that no other nation can, and that's the fact that their very first Mars mission, the Mars Orbiter Mission, or MOM, as it is referred <laughs> to, succeeded in entering Martian orbit, the very first mission to Mars from India. No one else can claim success like that. Right. No one else can claim the amount of success that India had with the Chandrayaan-1 mission last decade. So it's, a, it's an unfortunate failure, but it's important to contextualize a, that it was only 5% of this mission, so 95% of it continues, and, and that this isn't going to be the end, right? India's going to learn from what happened here. They'll build another. They'll go back. This isn't the end for them by any stretch of the imagination. I think people are optimistic, and I think we're all moving beyond the loss, um, which is clear. I don't think there's going to be any real change, right, Chris? Like They'll see it at some point. If 13 days have passed and they haven't been able to contact it, I would not hold out hope that the next 24 hours, we're recording this on a Wednesday, so tomorrow is the day that the window really closes to contact it. There's just not a huge realistic chance of that happening. And and once night falls, there's, there's no chance. That's a pretty big story, and obviously we'll be monitoring it. I mean, there is going to be a finality to that. There's going to be a conclusion. They're going to let the public know what happened. There's probably going to be photos at some point. But a more recent news story affects the whole aerospace industry. The Space Angels, a venture capitalist firm, is that what they are, Chris? They created this online database of all the emerging commercial space industry jobs, which is really interesting, and it reflects uh, sort of the moment where you know these companies are about to start ramping up rocket manufacturing and operations in low Earth orbit and small sat launches and things like that. These companies are hiring. Blue Origin is hiring. SpaceX is hiring. Mm-hmm. I've looked at their individual sites over the uh, last few days, too, and there's a significant amount of jobs on there. So if you're listening to this and you're an aerospace student, we do have a lot of listeners who are aerospace students. Now is the time. There's internships. <laughs> Go look. I did a search on usajobs.gov and there are internships at NASA at different places and especially in the commercial space industry. And uh, I think it's really cool that Space Angels launched this website. It's called spacetalent.org and it's really easy to use, you know, there's different categories and stuff. So check it out. See if there's a job for you that space industry is always hiring and always looking for fresh ideas. And uh, I think there's a big misconception I don't know where it comes from, probably Hollywood, that you have to be some kind of Harvard grad or MIT PhD or whatever. We have we have those people, too, and they're our friends and we're they're amazing. <laughs> but you don't have to be that to work in the space industry. The diversity of talent in these companies, artists, welders, accountants, baristas, there's all any kind of job that you want. And it's just about having a positive attitude is what keeps you here and keeps you moving up to the job that you really want. Hit up this website, spacetalent.org. 
And also, you can also check out the individual websites and stuff if you want to, but this seems like a growing database. And there's a newsletter which probably lists jobs regularly. So check that out. Chris, I think we have time for one more story. And it's a big one. Let's hit us with it. So last week, a huge, huge announcement from NASA via research that was done from data acquired by the Hubble Space Telescope, that iconic little observatory launched in 1990 by the shuttle Discovery. Hubble found water vapor in the atmosphere of an exoplanet 110 light years away from Earth that orbits within the habitable zone of its parent star. And that is huge. It's mind-blowing. It's science fiction. Yes. Now, the trick here is that we don't know yet whether this planet, which is called K218b, is terrestrial like Earth or if it's gaseous like Neptune. It is what is known or referred to as a super Earth, meaning that it is at least two times the size of Earth. It has a higher surface gravity as well. And this class of planets can either be terrestrial like Earth, Mercury, Venus, and Mars are, or gaseous like Neptune, Uranus, Saturn, and Jupiter. So if it's gaseous, right, that kind of stomps down the hype that perhaps there could be life on that planet. But if it turns out to be terrestrial, which there's a fairly good chance that it is, the fact that it is within the habitable zone and has a thick atmosphere like this means that its surface temperatures are likely that that could sustain liquid water. And that would be mind-blowing because 110 light years from Earth is the equivalent of the Bronx to Staten Island in it's in, rel- in relative terms. It's our neighborly in a way. It's, it's, it's our neighbor. Yeah, yeah like it's it's, it's it weird. Might be it's, like it, you know the this, weird neighbor at the end of the street. Yeah, in the exactly. Right. Like, they don't have a couch, so they don't know people <laughs> live there. So yeah, I, I it's you know when this story broke. I also want to shout out Marina Corin, who kind of crystallized, and Lauren Grush did too. They sort of crystallized the moment. There was two papers, right, Chris? One was not peer-reviewed, and one was published in a, in a reputable journal. So I am only familiar with the one that was published in the journal Nature Astronomy. I, I was unfamiliar with the second one. See, I got to Twitter that day. I don't know why I was late to Twitter. Like I didn't log in until like the afternoon or like noon around lunch. You bad millennial. I know. I logged in <laughs> and I saw people already fighting. I don't know. I don't what know were they what fighting time about? They were fighting about the story. Like, oh, this was you sourced the, uh, the non-peer-reviewed paper. And I don't know. And then I oh. saw these threats from Marina and Lauren explaining the situation, why people were mad or what was going on or whatever. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm done with Twitter for the day. So I went and I actually read space journalism articles that day. I read some really great coverage about the story in different magazines. And I sound like Sarah Palin because I can't name the magazines right now. But I promise you, I did read about the story. When a story like that breaks, Chris, we sometimes get the story from Twitter live. And that day I did not. (laughs) Let me just put it that way. Well, you know, the day that this broke was... Not a particularly great day for me on on a, on a personal level that I won't go into, but I did not realize this until the the next day 
when I was back into the swing of things and, you know, kind of saw on Twitter, like Hubble finds water on another planet. I think that was literally the the, the headline that I saw. And I was like, what now? I think that, I think I should have heard more about that if it was actually water, but you know, water vapor is in, in a way just as important as, as liquid water on the surface of a planet. If this turns out to be a terrestrial body, because it's further confirmation, right? That, Water in its various forms is prevalent throughout the galaxy, right? right? And especially throughout the observable systems that we have here to Earth. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing about this is that we can really only see about 3,000 light years out before the stars themselves become so clustered together from our viewpoint. Not that they are actually clustered together, but you know, that, that we can, that we really can't discern or see through them. It's like, it's like looking at a forest and you can see all the trees very clearly individually around you, but the farther out you look, the more they start to blend together. And that's the same problem we have with our optical and, and x-ray and infrared telescopes today. So there's this little bubble that we can see around us. It's about 3000 light years in diameter. And it's from that little sphere that we infer what all of the other exosolar systems have to look like. And this find, even though this planet is eight times the mass of Earth and its surface gravity is a lot higher, it could still hold water. And one thing that we know from Earth is that where there's water, there's life. And that's not just a cliched statement, right? Arsenic polluted water in Crater Lake, in Oregon, has life in it. The extreme radiation and extremely hot water vents at the bottom of the ocean have life and extremophiles, right? No matter what pollutes or is a part of the water source here on Earth, there is life that has been adapted or that has adapted itself and evolved there in some cases. So this is huge because... It really points to the fact that in our galactic neighborhood, there are possibilities of planets that could support life, especially if they're on similar evolutionary tracks in their solar system, not life on similar evolutionary tracks, but the planets in the star system themselves as compared to our sun and, and planet, which is about halfway through its life span. And that's huge because this planet was originally found by the Kepler telescope in 2015. And the follow-on observations that detected this water were performed in 2016 and 2017 by the Hubble telescope. Uh, But Kepler was doing very specific, very targeted observations of small little patches of the sky. The important part here is that the TESS telescope, which was launched last year by NASA, Mm -hmm. is doing an all-sky survey. And it's already completed half of that survey. So it is expected to find thousands upon thousands of exoplanets within 200 light years of Earth. And that is incredible because with these types of observations, we now know these types of potential water-bearing worlds exist in our neighborhood. Incredible. It is. And, you know, jumping a little ahead too, this type of observation that Hubble just did is exactly what the James Webb Space Telescope is designed to do in much greater detail. So this is one of the reasons that the astronomy community is so excited for James Webb and its launch next decade, 
is because these types of observations can unlock so many more mysteries and really point us toward that possibility of life existing on planets outside of our solar system in our neighborhood. I still think it's science fiction. We're finally catching up to Star Trek. And we talked <laughs> I mean, we talked about this on the Star are. Trek podcast. By the way, we have to do another one. So that's going to be our final news item here on this week's episode of Last Week in Space. I do have one thing that I wanted to add, Rob, okay. because the last time I was on here, for, for those of you who are devout listeners to the podcast, I was talking a lot about Hurricane Dorian. And of course, we were talking about its potential impacts to the Kennedy Space Center here in Florida. But I very much encourage all of you who are listening to seek out some legitimate Hurricane Dorian relief support agencies, reach out to them, see what they need in terms of food or money or supplies. Because while we focused a lot beforehand on the impacts to Florida, Florida and the United States got nothing compared to what the Bahamas got with Grand Bahama Island and Great Abaco Island basically being destroyed by this storm. So if you are in a position to help in any way, please, please, I implore you to do so. And we'll actually include those links in an article page if we can and uh, make sure we get those out there. Actually, we'll we'll tweet them out too so uh, you know where to find them. But thank you so much, Chris, for being on this episode. We're gl- glad you're okay. Uh, you know, we haven't really heard from, the listeners haven't heard from you in a couple of weeks, so I'm sure some of them have been wondering. So we're glad to have you back. We have, you know, hopefully some launches coming up Uh, next week. We we do. There are two Chinese launches coming up. One of them will have already happened by the time you're listening to this podcast. And the other will be coming up shortly thereafter if the schedule holds. And then next week, we have a very, very exciting launch on the 25th of September. Three more crew members will launch to the International Space Station. A Russian, Alexei Skiprochka, A NASA astronaut, Jessica Mir. And for the first time, An astronaut from the United Arab Emirates will be launching as well. He will not be staying aboard the space station long-term. He'll be going up and coming right back a few days later. And my apologies, it's Oleg Skoprochka. I used the wrong first name there for the Russian commander. The United Arab Emirates citizen is Haza al-Mansouri, and he will be the first Emirati astronaut. And uh, he will spend about eight days aboard the International Space Station before coming back in early October. And the launch is also the retirement flight of the Soyuz FG rocket. So a lot to look forward to in the next few days. Thanks so much, Chris. And uh, it looks like we'll have a lot to talk about on our next episode. So please uh, join us again next week. Any big stories that we didn't hear about, start sending them to us on Twitter or email if you're not trapped in an open air prison like we are. So thank you. Thank you.